revealing the hidden secrets of the sea. This is Naked Oceans. This month on Naked Oceans, we're getting the lowdown on what it's like to have the best job in the world. Working in the oceans isn't just about counting fish. There's all sorts of other exciting things it involves, and we'll be taking a look at a few of them, including from someone who, as well as doing his own science, is using cutting-edge communication tools to inspire the next generation of ocean champions in two very different parts of the planet. And I thought, well, wouldn't it be cool if we could come up with this sort of virtual classroom and we let them talk about what matters to them simultaneously uh, from opposite ends of the earth? I'm Helen Scales, and with me is Sarah Caster-Perry. Hello! I've just got back from a trip to San Diego where I met up with a bunch of scientists at Scripps Institution of Oceanography, and we'll be hearing from some of them later on about what they love about their jobs. And we've got another Critter of the Month lined up. They go in, get the whiskers tickled, dash up behind them and go and pull the diver's fins. And I think that would be really fun to do. Keep listening to find out which marine expert that was and which critter they picked. If you want to get in touch, you can tweet us at Naked Oceans or email us. The address is nakedoceans at thenakedscientist.com. Supported by the Save Our Seas Foundation, this is Naked Oceans. On the web at nakedscientist.com slash oceans. Here on Naked Oceans, we talk to all sorts of fantastic people who devote their lives to studying and protecting the oceans. And we decided for this month's show to dig a little deeper into just what it is that they do and how you might go about getting involved in the marine world yourself. A couple of weeks ago, I was lucky enough to take a trip to Scripps Institution of Oceanography in San Diego, California. And while I was there, I chatted to a few of the scientists I met about how they ended up doing what they do and what they love about being marine scientists. To start off with, I asked Paul Jensen, who works on marine microbes, and Miriam Goldstein, who works on zooplankton, how they ended up working in marine science. I grew up in New York City, and so I wasn't really exposed to a lot of the marine environment. Um, but I was always interested in marine science, as I think you know many people are as they're growing up, watching Jacques Cousteau on TV and all those sorts of things. And so when I went to college, I you know, found a program where I could major in marine biology, and that sort of got me started. But, you know, there are a lot of different paths to a career in this field, and and I took a slightly different one in that I sort of, my graduate degrees were spread out over time because I, I would work for a while, and then I'd go back to school and get another degree and work for a while. And, and, and so it wasn't necessarily a, a traditional path, I'm a bit slow, perhaps, so it was most of the way through college. Um, I started out as an English major, and then I needed a job. So um, a friend of mine from theater got me this job in a lab, and he was like, oh, you know, you'll like it. It's You're scanning all these slides, which is cause it's actually before digital cameras, which makes me sad to say. So this uh, lab was taking pictures of some of the most biodiverse marine environments in the world, like in the Seychelles, and uh, looking at the biodiversity through these pictures. So I scanned all the slides and I started to become really interested in what was, what were these things and what were the questions that we were asking. Um, and so then I got sort of sucked into marine ecology and ended up doing uh, independent research in this lab. And um, suddenly I was on the path to become a marine biologist. So not everyone takes an obvious route into the job and you don't have to live by the sea to be inspired by it. All of the scientists I spoke to agreed that they love what they do. So I had to ask, what's the best thing about their job and the best part of coming into work each day? 
First, we'll hear from Michael Latz, who showed me some of the amazing bioluminescent dinoflagellates that he works on in his lab, then Paul and Miriam again. Unfortunately, you can't see where we're sitting, but we're in an office overlooking the ocean, the Pacific Ocean, with the waves, and there's some dolphins offshore. It's incredibly beautiful. So if you want to be a marine biologist, it's really nice if you can work along the seashore. And I've been lucky to be able to do that. So the location is beautiful. Coming into work, you come to the beach. So I work at the beach every day. The best part of the job is when I'm not coming here to work in my office, but when I'm out in the field, for sure. And that's really the best part of a career in marine science is that you can you can choose what you're interested in studying and you can choose where you want to study your interests and go there and do field work and be in the water and, and see some really interesting habitats. There's two best parts. Um, one is the going to sea is fantastic. It's, it's wonderful. I mean, I love going to sea and I love seeing my plankton net come up and um, never know really what's going to be in it. It's different every time. And then the other fantastic thing is being able to answer the questions that you're asking. Because you're asking these questions basically of the world and then doing all this work to try to make sense of them. And when something actually does make sense, after all the going to sea, and in my case, the getting seasick and like coming back and all these things, and then you are actually able to find out something that no one else has ever found out, that's an amazing feeling. And Michael agreed with Miriam about the excitement of finding out new things being a major draw of the job. The part I like the best about the job is the scientific discovery. I love doing experiments. I love figuring out how to develop a protocol for an experiment. So I like working in the laboratory. I like working with equipment and computers and putting together essentially an engineering solution for how to do something. I have to agree that the combination of scientific discovery and those amazing views from the offices at Scripps must be a pretty good incentive to go to work. But of course, it's not all plain sailing and not all about going out on research vessels all the time. I asked Miriam what the reality of her life as a marine researcher really is. The reality is you do get to go to expeditions, but... A month at sea can lead to three years of lab work and writing. It, I mean, it very much depends on specifically what you're doing. If you are observing marine mammals, you know, you're going to do that a lot at sea. But if you're doing something like me with zooplankton, you can't really process them on a microscope at sea. So you take a lot of samples, preserve them all as fast as you can, and put them in jars, and then you deal with them back at the lab when the ground isn't moving anymore. Um, I always get seasick. And you can be a marine biologist and get seasick. There are many excellent and famous marine biologists who spend significant time, shall we say, closely observing over the side of the ship. Um, so I go to sea about once a year for a month and then spend the rest of the year working out those samples and writing and working at my computer. Yeah, I think the seasickness would put me off a little bit, although Miriam did say that her sickness only lasts a couple of days and that once she's found her sea legs, she's just fine. So to succeed as a marine scientist, what kind of person do you need to be? Michael lays out what he feels are the necessary attributes and Paul explains what he's learned from his career so far. I think you need to be very curious about the world around you, very interested in how it works and have a desire to learn as a scientist, any kind of scientist, you are learning. And so that process is, for me, very inspiring. 
the goal of gaining knowledge, and that knowledge helps us to better understand how the world works around us. What I've learned from the process is that it's probably one-third being good at what you do. It's one-third luck, you know, being in the right place at the right time. And, it, and it's one-third persistence. And if you and if you stick with something for a while and you believe in it and you and you work hard at it, then you can end up making a career in doing what you really want to do. That was Paul Jensen and before him, Michael Latz. I spoke to both of them and to Miriam Goldstein at Scripps Institution of Oceanography in San Diego, California. And if you want to see what they meant about it being a great place to work, I did take some photos while I was there. So do go to our website to check some of those out. But I'm warning you now, they will make you very jealous. That's at thenakedscientist.com forward slash oceans. And we'll have all the links to Paul, Miriam and Michael's research pages up there too. So you can read more about what they work on. Now, Helen, you're a marine biologist by training. You've done your PhD, you've written books. What's your top tip for someone who's thinking about getting involved in the ocean realm? Well, one of the big things I think that I stuck to when I was thinking about this was basically to ignore every time someone said to you, oh, no, don't do marine biology because there's no jobs and um, everyone wants to do it and, you know, there's really no point. Just ignore them. They're jealous. Um, It's true, you know, as in many parts in the world, it's not the easiest one, but if it's what you want to do and if you've got an excitement for it, then you just have to go for it. You've got to follow those dreams. So don't listen to people when they say that and don't listen to people when they tease you saying that it's just about wanting to hang around on a beach because that's also not true. As we've heard from Miriam and the others, there's all sorts of different places you end up and things you end up doing. So it's really varied. And just, just ignore the jealous people. They're just the ones who didn't make the right choice, frankly. Are there really plenty more fish in the sea? Find out with Naked Oceans on the web at nakedscientist.com slash oceans. You're listening to Naked Oceans with Sarah Castor-Perry and me, Helen Scales. Well, let's take a break from ocean careers for a minute and uh, take a quick dip into this month's ocean news headlines. Well, encountering a shark underwater might not be everyone's idea of a fun thing to do, but increasing numbers of people around the world are starting to pay top dollar for the chance to encounter a beautiful, graceful live shark in the water. And a new satellite tracking study suggests that when scuba diving companies in the Caribbean feed tiger sharks to attract them to dive sites, it doesn't actually radically alter their behaviour. Well, the spectacle of seeing sharks underwater is, as I say, becoming a major draw for scuba divers. And studies are showing the huge revenues possible from shark ecotourism compared to killing them for their fins. But a major criticism of the booming shark dive industry is the many outfits that feed sharks to attract them predictably to dive sites. But what impact does this actually have on their behaviour and ecology? Well, for the first time, satellite tags have been used to help explore that question. Neil Hammerschlag from the University of Miami led a team of shark taggers in Florida, where shark feeding is illegal, and in the Bahamas, where tiger sharks are regularly fed. They tagged 11 tiger sharks in Florida and 14 in the Bahamas, and they were tracked for between 26 and 297 days. The team expected that compared to Florida, the sharks in the Bahamas would swim around a smaller area concentrated at those feeding sites. But as the satellite tracking data came in, they got a big surprise. Not only did they find no evidence that the sharks getting a free feed were swimming over a smaller area, the Bahamas sharks had a huge home range, almost five times larger than the Florida sharks. 
But the team also uncovered the previously unknown long-distance migrations of up to 3,500 kilometres into open Atlantic waters. The tiger sharks seem to be following the Gulf Stream into food-rich areas that concentrate their prey. Well, based on their findings, the team recommend that shark diving shouldn't be dismissed out of hand, especially given the potential benefits that come with increased awareness of sharks and the money that could potentially help support their conservation. And I, surely it has to be a good thing that more people are learning to love sharks and to savour the wonderful sight of seeing one underwater rather than being scared of them or indeed making their fins into soup. That's really good that we've actually got some evidence in support of ecotourism because it's a very popular thing these days. Kind of how can we think about making revenue from these areas rather than overexploiting them through fishing or killing for fins? That's really, really good news. Well, I've got another story about fisheries and fisheries management. And the real problem these days with fisheries management is that what a government decides will be best for conservation may not actually be best for the local people that rely on that fishery. And it may, in fact, end up harming the fish stocks in the end. A study published in the February edition of Scientific Reports has shown just this in a Gulf Corvina fishery off the coast of Mexico. I spoke to the author, Brad Erisman, who explained why the fishery is vulnerable and about the work that the researchers carried out there. So the fishery all revolves around this breeding migration, this massive fish migration of millions of huge fish coming into a river mouth uh, to breed and to spawn, and the fishery has been harvesting that that migration for over a century. It's very productive, but also it's very susceptible to overfishing because it's actually harvesting at the moment the fish are trying to breed. We know that the behavior of this fish is very vulnerable to collapse. The fishermen have known this. The fisher scientists have known as the manager. So everyone's been very worried about that, especially because it's larger relative, a very similar fish but much bigger one, the tatuaba, has, has been known to do the same set of breeding migration in the early part of the century, and it was collapsed due to overfishing, and it was actually the first marine fish listed as an endangered species worldwide. So we already have a history of collapse, and we know how the story will end if something isn't done. So in response to that, people have been trying to get together to, to try to come up with a solution. And um, what was the actual data that you collected? We collected a lot of data. One of the things we did was actually doing something called a vessel monitoring system. So you track in real time uh, the actual movement of boats. And we did that not only to understand the fishing intensity in really fine scale spaces, the scale of meters, but also to understand the migration of the fish and how the fish move in and out of this river mouth to spawn. We also collected uh, really detailed information on the landings, how the landings and the effort of fishermen changed on a daily basis, and also how the biology of the fish changed on a daily basis, whether they were spawning or not spawning. What are the impacts of the results that you found? Well, the impacts were that the fishing activity is synchronous with the spawning activity of this fish. And that can be, from first glance, very troublesome to think about because the potential impacts on the population of the fish could be very negative, uh, could cause a collapse and has been known to. But the important point is that we've identified the scale at which this is occurring. It's a very small area and it's a very brief period. This migration and spawning is basically a three to four day period that coincides with the, the moon cycles. And so by identifying the exact moments, time, and space when this is happening, it really gives the foundation for building a sustainable management plan. And because it's so finite and so predictable, we think that it's really feasible to build something. And and a management plan that can include fishermen as well as the benefit of of the fish and the species itself. So the local people and the local government are keen to take this scientific data on board? 
Yeah, I think the the importance of this is historically there's been a disconnect between the resource users and fishermen and government um, in terms of a, a cooperative management scenario. And we know from worldwide experience that cooperative management and inclusion of the resource users of fishermen is really key to successful sustainable management, whether it's bridging conservation issues and, and economic resources together. And so this has often been absent in this region of the world. Um, and so we thought this was a good way to increase the transparency in management, in science, with fishers and resource users involved because it bridges the communication gap, increases their confidence in science, and increases their, their confidence and willingness to participate in management. So that kind of coincided and paralleled the actual scientific part itself. So while the main results of the study are simple, the implications are not, as Brad explains. In the one hand, the paper shows that very clearly that all the fishing pressure is during the most vulnerable point, and actually it occurs inside a no-take refuge. And so you can look at it as something that's all about illegal fishing and all these different things. But at the same time, you realize that the way the fish move in and the way the law is set up, it really gives very little opportunity for the fishermen to fish. So I think of it more as, yes, we've the bigger look at it as more as a positive spin in that we've identified the issue. Um, and now it's to try to change things to make it more sustainable, but also in a balanced sustainability, because you have to balance sustainability of socioeconomic livelihoods and fish, and sometimes things are swayed one or the other. We're trying to harvest the fact that even though the fishermen are, they're all very well aware that they fish illegally. So we, it's like 90% of the capture was inside a no-take zone. But they really have no alternative, and it's a very complex story due to market problems and political problems. But at the same time, they're willing to risk that because they want to participate in the building of better management. So we have a difficult case here where this no-take zone is being completely ignored by the local fishermen because they have no choice economically but to fish there. Brad's point that one of the things that we could take away from the study is that these fishermen are doing something illegal that's harming wildlife is perfectly valid. But he wanted to bring out the issue that clearly the locals want to be involved in decisions on helping to preserve the fishery because it's their livelihood. And now that we have more information on exactly where and when these Gulf Corvinas spawn, hopefully this will help fishery scientists, fishermen and local governments come to a decision together that they all agree on. Yeah, it's the big challenge with fisheries and marine conservation in general to bring everyone together who's involved in, in, as you say, using the ocean and protecting the ocean. And hopefully we can come to a point where we can all figure out what's the best way forwards. Well, I'm going to stick to that part of the world with my next news story, because it will soon be two years since the Deepwater Horizon oil spill happened in the Gulf of Mexico. And there's still a lot of concern over the impact it's had on marine and coastal ecosystems in the region. Well, a new study just out suggests that communities of small critters living in coastal salt marshes are vulnerable to oil exposure, but at the same time quite resilient. And as long as the plants they live in remain healthy, they can recover within a year. As the oil swept across the Gulf back in 2010, Brittany McCall and Steve Pennings from the University of Houston in the US went out and studied populations of crabs, snails, insects and spiders living in 10 salt marshes in Louisiana and Mississippi in areas that weren't completely covered but had relatively low levels of oil. Well, compared to oil-free control sites, there were around half the abundance of salt marsh invertebrates in the oil sites when they first went to look at them. That was all except the marine snail, Litterina, which seemed to be unaffected by the oil. But the good news was that after a year, all those animals had recovered. 
And what the study reveals is that even when salt marshes aren't completely smothered in oil, the animals living there can still be affected in the short term by lower levels of pollutants. And it really just goes to show that we mustn't forget those little species. If you remember last month on Naked Oceans, we chatted with Emmett Duffy about his work on another vital coastal habitat, seagrass, and the importance of those little invertebrates like amphipods that live there. And, uh, and you could also have another listen to the interview we did back in 2010 with Robinson Fulweiler of Boston University, all about the Louisiana wetlands and the important things that they do. Well, do have a look at that Saltmarsh paper. Um, it's an open access journal, PLOS One, so you can have a look at what, what they got up to. I'm, I'm moving things down to the deep ocean now for my second story. Here on Naked Oceans, we've, we've covered stories before on deep sea hydrothermal vents, but these aren't actually the only type of vent spewing mineral rich water into the deep sea. Cold seeps, as the name suggests, don't belch out plumes of hot water like hydrothermal vents do, but instead cooler water that's often rich in methane. Over the last three decades of research into deep sea vents, it was thought that cold seeps and hydrothermal vents were only found in separate, geologically distinct areas of the ocean and supported very different communities of life. But in recent years, they've been found in pretty close proximity, and now a team led by Lisa Levin from Scripps Institution of Oceanography has found a hybrid ecosystem in an area of Costa Rica that suggests the presence of what they term a hydrothermal seep system. The team used the Alvin Research Submersible to take sediment samples, water temperature and composition measurements, and pictures to observe the fauna living at the base of Jacko Scar, a seamount on a tectonic plate that's moving underneath the adjacent one. Their results suggest a hybrid system, with species that were usually found at either vents or seeps coexisting perfectly happily. They suggest that we may need to think of vent and seep ecosystems as being on a kind of continuum and not just confined to one group or the other. And they also suggest some other areas where these new hybrid hydrothermal seeps might be found. And that's all published in the Proceedings of the Royal Society B. We'll have all of the links to all of our news stories on the website. You can find information about all of those and other news stories that we've covered before at our webpage. That's thenakedscientist.com forward slash oceans. From seagrass to sunfish, dugongs to diatoms, this is Naked Oceans. You're listening to Naked Oceans with Sarah Castaperi and me, Helen Scales, and this month we're talking all about careers in ocean science. Well, marine biology isn't all about counting fish. Dr Joshua Drew works at the Field Museum of Chicago, specialising in fish biodiversity, and as well as his academic research, he's also involved in a pioneering initiative aimed at inspiring teenagers on opposite sides of the planet to learn about the oceans. He's putting cutting-edge technologies and social media to use in linking up high school students from inner-city Chicago and Fiji. So I was working in Fiji where we were describing new species and recognizing the high levels of endemism within Fiji. And whenever we told people in the village about that, they became really excited about it. And I thought, well, it would be great if we could work more systematically and not just do it piecemeal from village to village, but rather get it ingrained into the education system. And so I wanted to work with high schoolers in Fiji to teach them from the very beginning, from, you know, they're 14, 15 years old, about how special their marine resources are and how they are the stewards of those endemic species, that they are the people who are responsible for the health of the entire world's population of these species. 
And that's a pretty big responsibility, but it's also a, a big source of pride. You know, we use the phrase naika kaiviti, the Fijian fish. As well as working with students in Fiji, Dr. Drew also wanted to connect with people closer to home. It was distressing to me that the teens in Chicago aren't often exposed to, to wild and natural places and that they didn't have necessarily a sense of how beautiful and vibrant the marine world is. And that got me thinking about, well, how do we best link up kids in Chicago with kids in Fiji? And it kind of hit me that, well, they aren't different, that they're really, I was trying to do the same thing, but just in two unique environments. But the methods I would use to get them, the youths engaged are pretty much the same. And there was no reason why we couldn't do it as a unified program. And I thought, well, wouldn't it be cool if we could come up with this sort of virtual classroom where we, we do away with the geographic distances between the students and we just let them communicate and we let them talk about what matters to them simultaneously uh, from opposite ends of the earth. So that's just what Dr. Drew did. Working with an NGO in Fiji and education specialists at the Field Museum, he connected kids in Fiji and Chicago. The real hallmark of this was getting the kids learning from each other. So, for instance, we had a project where each student group would study one individual. And we had one group in Chicago and one group in Fiji both work on white-tipped reef sharks. And they researched it, and we had them do a little bit of a, a documentary or a play about white-tipped reef sharks. And they would video them, and we post them to this custom social network site that we made. And then both groups would review each other's and say, oh, that was great. You know, you learned how these, these are benthic sharks, so they live down the bottom and they sort of use their heads and wiggle into crevices and get parrotfish, but maybe you didn't talk about how they hunt in packs. It was sort of peer-to-peer -peer learning and that the students were critiquing and, and coming up with a stronger project. And that peer-to-peer -peer is a much more effective way for students to kind of get the, the information reinforced than just me standing up on high on a podium lecturing at them. And at the end of the semester, Dr. Drew got the students in Fiji and Chicago to work together on a project that ended up having some real-world conservation outputs. The final project was, was really awesome. I love it. What we did was I, I flew out to Fiji and we worked with the students there for a couple weeks. And we uh, worked with a village called Navakavu, which is about 10 kilometers outside of the capital city of Fiji, Suva. And the villagers in Navakavu are mostly fishermen. And they had actually done a really good job of keeping their reefs clean. They had fishery wardens there. They had tambu areas, these no-take areas set up. But yet their fisheries were still declining. So we went there and we wanted to figure out, you know, why this was. So the Fijian students and I went in and we did a sevu sevu, which is a traditional welcoming ceremony where we were invited into the village and we talked to the chief and the village elders a little bit about why we were there and what we wanted to do. And then the Fijian students interviewed the fishermen in Fijian about why they thought their resources were declining, what the threats to their reefs were. The students actually videotaped these two and were able to translate them. And so they, the Fijian students made these little mini documentaries about the village of Nabukavu. Hola, my name is Thomas. I'm Sikro. Uh, we're doing a video on uh, marine conservation. As you've seen in this video, Melayiku has been living in this village since her whole entire life. She often goes to the reef every afternoon to see how the reef is changing. 
she also stated that in the last 10 years, the reef has changed. For example, before there were a lot of fish, but nowadays there's hardly any fish. The message that came through loud and clear from the villagers of Narvakavu was that they saw their reefs getting impacted by garbage washing in from Suva, the capital of Fiji. So the Fijian students shared these mini-documentaries with their friends in Chicago and together they brainstormed ideas of what to do about this problem of plastic waste. What we ended up doing was coming up with writing uh, two letters to the editor at the, for the Fijian newspapers, the Fiji Times, and also coming up with a PSA, a public service announcement, so a short video letting people know that polluting in Suva impacts reefs outside of Suva. And it was really great because the students in Chicago came up with these ideas, they wrote them, and then as a class in Chicago, we went down to Lake Michigan and we acted out this video where we showed when you throw a plastic bag into the water, it can end up in your food supply. And it's a really, really funny video. The thing that I loved the best about that is that as educators, we sort of stepped back and we let the students come up with the ideas and we let the students create and edit and shoot and... Uh, and put together both the videos and the letters. You know, we helped make sure that there was, the factual content was there, but this was really the students in the driver's seat, and this was the students taking tenure over their own conservation activities. And that, as a conservation biologist, was, was really, really heartening to see. While bringing together students in Fiji and Chicago, Dr. Drew has been helping to spread the word about marine biology and ocean conservation in two very different parts of the world. The school in Fiji uh, is a, a private school, it's a prep school, and I was really glad to work with the next generation of Fijian leaders. Uh, these students from Fiji are very, very smart, and they're, they're going to be the people who in 10 or 15 years are running the, the fisheries management council, who the people who are going to be running the no-take marine protected area council. Yeah, and I wanted to make sure that these people who are going to be in positions to help control and improve Fiji's environment at least got some exposure to why it's important to do marine conservation. And I wanted to at least have them start thinking that Fiji has really beautiful reefs that are still in relatively good shape and that they have it in their, the power in their hands to make sure that in 10 or 15 years when they're running the country, that they can keep Fiji being one of these beautiful places in the world. And on the Chicago end, I wanted to show the students that if you have an interest in science, that there's a lot of really cool careers you can do with it. You know, obviously, I think being a marine biologist is the best job in the world, and I'm totally biased in that aspect. But one of the great uh, spinoffs was that was that two of the students who uh, participated in the project are now interning with me here at the Field Museum over the summer where we're working on marine biology and marine conservation issues. And that's a really fantastic opportunity for them and for myself. Well, those two lucky students, Amber and Darce, spent their summer working with Dr. Drew at the Field Museum, helping him to study his fish. We do so many different things and it's really exciting. We do DNA analysis, we do morphological analysis, uh, processing where it's like we measure the fish, um, we measure like the different parts of the fish, like the dorsals and the pelvic spines. I learn a lot and I absorb a lot so that I can teach people, like I teach people at home, of what I learn and they find it exciting. I'm enjoying everything. There's not one point in my day which I don't like. And every day I go home, I go and like tell everybody what I did today and annoy them with how excited I was at work and they were just sitting at home. And one of the things that's been really great for me is that the students aren't 
just sort of doing grunt labor. I mean, they are actually doing the calculations and the statistical analyses that we need to help write these papers. So they're not just sort of getting me coffee. They're really doing, honest to God, good work. I'm just really, really impressed to see how the students who started out not really knowing a whole lot about different species or different marine interactions, how in a relatively short period of time, transitioned from being really marine novices to, to being experts about it. And I'm also really proud that they didn't just sit there with that information, that they not only did the Conservation Act, but that they're really telling everybody in their, their community about it and really starting to raise the awareness of it. Um, that was far more than I could have ever hoped for. From Cirlo and I, we hope you enjoyed the video. Thank you. Thomas and Cirlo from Fiji there, ending that report with Joshua Drew about his work at the Field Museum of Natural History in Chicago, connecting teenagers in Fiji and Chicago to inspire them about the oceans. Well, I just heard the fantastic news that both of Dr. Drew's summer intern students, Amber and Darcy, have got places at university to study science next year. And we've made a special extended version of that interview with Dr. Drew, Amber and Darcy, and you can find that at thenakedscientist.com forward slash specials. So do have a listen to find out more about what they've been up to. And you can also find out more about Josh's work and uh, watch that public service announcement video on plastic waste that his students made at our website. That's thenakedscientist.com forward slash oceans. Well, we've reached the point in the show where we track down another marine expert and ask them if they were a marine critter, which one they would be and why. Let's find out who we've got this time on Critter of the Month. Hello, I'm Jen Ashworth from Natural England. And if I was a marine creature, I'd like to be a grey seal, particularly a grey seal living on the island of Lundy, which is in the Bristol Channel. Grey seals seem to have a great life. They spend their time either swimming around in the sea, hiding in the kelp forests, and then when the tide is low, go and sit on the rocks and watch people going by. They have quite a lot of divers at Lundy, and the grey seals seem to have a great time with the divers. They go in and um, get their whiskers tickled, dash up behind them and go and pull the divers' fins, and I think that would be really fun to do. <laughs> Interesting fact about the grey seals is they were one of the first marine animals to be protected since 1914, and the populations are doing really well. We have about 40% of the world's population in the UK and therefore I think life as a grey seal would be great. That was Jen Ashworth from Natural England introducing the playful marine animals, the grey seals, that can be seen hanging out and generally being cute in British seas and beyond. And you can find lots more oceans experts picking their top critters at our website. That's thenakedscientist.com forward slash oceans. Well, that's all we've got time for Naked Oceans this month. It just remains for me to say a huge thank you to Paul Jensen, Miriam Goldstein, Michael Letts, Joshua Drew and his students, Amber and Darcy, Brad Erisman and Jen Ashworth. We'll be back next month with more ocean science and conservation. Until then, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter at Naked Oceans or email us the address is nakedoceans at thenakedscientist.com and you'll find more info about this month's show and all the others at thenakedscientist.com forward slash oceans. Thanks for listening and catch you next time. Naked Oceans is produced by the Naked Scientists and supported by the Save Our Seas Foundation. For more information, look them up online at saveourseas.com.